As many times as I've read the Bible, there are some basic principles that I never got before. One of which, God can't use perfect people. So if you're waiting around to get your life together before you come to God, you're missing the point. Welcome to Intersect Radio, where music, faith, and life converge, with your host, Aaron the A-Train Smith. show yeah i was sitting here grooving i was sitting here grooving and i had to like snap out of it so i could say something but anyway welcome everybody yeah man welcome everybody to intersect radio it's been a long hot summer and uh i've been away from the mic for a while out on the road with mr kevin max and and you know, everybody else has been doing their thing, so it's been hard to get them settled down for an interview. Uh, but now that summer's coming to an end, hopefully it'll be a lot easier for all of us. And today, my special guest is the one, the only, bassist, band leader, friend, great friend, one of my best. Mr. Daryl C. Anders. Daryl C. Anders, welcome to Intersect Radio. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's always good to talk to my good friend, Aaron Smith. Cool, man. We don't talk that much, but, uh, you know, we we got a sonic thing going on, you know? Yes, we do. Yeah, it's kind of like the antenna is up and pointed in your direction so that when you send me a message or something... Always connect, always on it, dude. You know, and with that being said, and we don't talk a lot. We've never talked about your life and your beginnings, where you grew up, and all that sort of stuff. And um, a lot of people listening never heard you talk about that either. So let's start from the beginning with when Daryl C. Anders took that first breath of air and let out this big baby cry, I guess we could call it. <laughs> well, I don't remember <laughs> quite that far back. Uh, oh, darn. <laughs> but I, uh, I do remember growing up in Florida and uh, even at Smyrna. a young age thinking, I got to get out of here. You said Smyrna. No, Florida. Oh, Florida. The sunshine State. Mm-hmm. Oh, what part of Florida? Uh, St. Petersburg. 
the Tampa Bay area. Uh-huh. And why were you so anxious and, to get out? Um, I don't know. Even I, I remember even at a, a fairly young age thinking, yeah, I, I need to be away from here. I want to, I want to travel. I want to go other places. There has to be mm. something more mm-hmm. than this. Not that there was nothing bad. I wasn't running away from anything. I just felt like, you know, you know, I, I was telling someone, I remember as a kid, uh, practicing for my interview on the Mike Douglas show because I just felt like that was something that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, um, cool. I didn't quite get on the Mike Douglas show, but I've, I've done some cool stuff. I've had a, had a good time doing it. Okay. Well, let's, let's go back. Uh, let's go back as far as you can go back and start. What do you think? Um, uh, I'm trying to think what's interesting. I mean, I, I like I said, I grew up in Florida. It's all interesting. It's all interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started playing music when I was in the third grade. Why? Um, and because my I was I'm from a musical family. There's always music in my house. Um, mm-hmm. My my dad played piano and upright. My godfather was a great jazz trumpet player uh, in the area, and. Oh, yeah. I just thought that was a, a cool thing. I mean, there's just all this great music in my house all the time. So, mm-hmm. um, I initially I wanted to be a drummer, but so did every other kid in my school. So, right. uh, trumpet was, was my, my plan B because, uh, you know, my godfather's drum player and I thought it'd be cool. Mm-hmm. So I did that, uh, from third grade to eighth grade at which time I discovered a band called the Brothers Johnson on the Quincy Jones album called Mellow Badness. Yeah. And yeah. that that sound kind of freaked me out. Okay. And uh, at, at that point, uh, I begged my parents for a bass, and I got a bass for Christmas that year, and I would just sit in my room and, and play along to every song that came on the radio and try to figure it out. And, mm-hmm. Uh, that was just, that was my world for, you know, all through high school. You know, you said, you, you know, you said every, everybody in your school wanted to be a drummer. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had that same experience when I first joined the band. We had like 25 guys come out for drums. Oh and yeah. You know, yeah. And, and the only thing that happened was, is I outlasted at least 21 of them. As well, you should. <laughs> because the rest of them playing the drums ain't the same thing, <laughs> right? Because rest of them got bored and quit, or you know, just got it and figure it. Oh, I thought I was going to get something and hit on it, and it was going to all be fun. What's a rudiment? That's where we yeah, lost them. I, I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that music is work. Yeah, you know you have yeah. to put work into it to get better at it, uh, and you have to constantly work on your craft. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Tell me, uh, 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 then, when you, um, we, how old were you when you started playing bass? I was, uh, I think, fourteen. Oh, really? Yeah, 
Yeah. So um, when so did you get 14. your first gig? Uh, I was 16, and the band in my hometown, they were like the 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 best R&B soul funk horn band called the Washington Jam Band. And mm-hmm. their bass player, I just thought, was the most incredible bass player I'd ever seen live. And something happened. He moved away or went to jail or something. And uh, I ran into the leader of the band in the mall with my friend Bobby Tyson. And uh, I asked about the bass player. He goes, oh, yeah, he, he's gone. We're actually looking for a bass player. And my friend said, oh, Daryl's a bass player. And he pushed me up to it. I'm like, I'm not good enough to do that. So huh. long story short, uh, I auditioned and I got the gig. And I did that for, I don't know, maybe a year. Um, it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was fun, but I, I clearly wasn't really ready to do that. But, mm-hmm. uh, what it did teach me was it taught me how to learn songs, how to like really, um, dig into the parts and how mm-hmm. to play in an ensemble and how to groove with a drummer. Cause at that point I'd just been playing in my bedroom or, you know, jamming with friends at school. So it really taught me a lot about being in a band. Mm-hmm. Cool. And what what did you do after that year? I mean, you said you were with the band for about a year. Then then what happened? What yeah. transpired? Um, I think that was the year. It was right around the time I graduated from high school. And then I went uh, went to junior college for a year. Um, just kind of jamming around with friends. Didn't really play in a band for a while. And then I went to the Air Force. And I joined the Air Force mm. in 1980. Volunteer? Hmm? Of course you volunteered, right? The Air Force. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get away from Florida quickly. And um, I, I wanted to see the world. So I joined the Air Force and I got stationed in Japan. And it just kind of changed it the trajectory trajectory of my life. And what was your spec? Uh, I worked in aircraft uh, fuels, refueling jets, and um, I worked on flight simulators for a little while. Um, I did a couple of different things. It was, it was fun. You know, I got to, to, to see some different parts of the world, um, meet a lot of great people, some of whom I'm still friends with to this day. Um, and it was, you know, it was great to to get out of the country at that young age because mm-hmm. I got a chance to see what the rest of the world was like mm-hmm. and to see also how people perceive people in this country. Because I think it's really easy to have a very monolithic view of what America is if you never step outside of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Agreed. Uh, it, was, it was a great education. And um, uh, I'm... Uh, I encourage everybody, if you have an opportunity to travel, do it. Mm-hmm. it it's good for your soul. It's good for, for everything. Yeah. Because we're, we're all connected. And I, and I think, you know, it, it feels like that connectivity is, is slipping a little bit. Mm-hmm. And in, in my life, I'm trying to do everything I can to, to solidify it as opposed to tear it apart. Mm-hmm. Great, man. 
Did you um, play bass while you were in the service? Uh, I did. Um, I didn't play in the Air Force Band. <clears throat> I was going to audition for it. Um, I'm not a good reader. And um, I, it wasn't important enough for me at that time to really work on it, to be in the Air Force Band. And then mm-hmm. um, I got uh, an opportunity. I used to go into uh, into town and there was a jazz club outside of the base, like 20 minutes outside the base. And uh, I would go there and sit in and got to know the owners. And pretty soon I was playing there anytime I wanted to. I would just go there and play, you know, mm-hmm. four or five nights a week. And it's when I first discovered jazz, I mean, as, as you know, as far as trying to learn how to play it. And how, do, how did that happen? Um. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of jazz, but I didn't really have a love for it because that was my dad's music, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But going and seeing live jazz, it, I really kind of developed an appreciation for it. And um, mm-hmm. the owner of this jazz club, it was called Cam's Live House. And uh, Cam was a piano player, a great piano player. And he he gave me the opportunity to... Uh, to work on that and it was it was just great you know i i, I mm-hmm. learned a lot of great songs and then like great people and like i said it changed a lot of things for me Hmm. man i bet you how long were you stationed in japan uh, i was stationed in japan and for two years oh yeah and uh, you know i went to the philippines a few times and um it was great and then uh while i was in japan while I was in Japan, I met the singer, Barbara Long, who was in a USO traveling uh, kind of show band. Mm-hmm. And Barbara and her uh, now husband, Daryl Joe, were from Sacramento. So I thought, well, maybe okay. I'll try to get stationed near where they are. And mm-hmm. basically, that's what happened. I got stationed at Travis. And when I came back to the United States, uh, we put a band together. With and, those uh, with those same folk, huh? Mm-hmm. We did that, cool. and then Barbara went on to be the singer in Hiroshima for All right. a, a few years. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it was it was great. I mean, I, again, it was a connection from you know a random meeting at a club in Japan, and then you know we're we're lifelong friends now. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well, let's. Um, I, I want to go back to Sacramento, little... where we met. Yeah, yeah. But before we get to Sacramento, I want I want you to go back and uh, tell us about growing up in St. Petersburg and, and the Anders family and what you guys did and uh, how you got it was, along. I think it was it was a fairly typical thing, you know. My my parents both worked in the school system, but uh, my, my dad. Uh, initially was uh, like a choir director and a band director. And then he went back mm-hmm. to school and got his master's degree in uh, secondary education. And then he became a dean and then an assistant principal. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my mom was an elementary school teacher. And then she went back and got her master's degree and uh, became mm-hmm. a guidance counselor, which uh, she did until she retired. And wow. uh, so I was... 
I was the, the, the product of two teachers, which meant I didn't get away with anything in school. Like if I did mm-hmm. something, my parents knew about it before I even was done doing it. <laughs> um, which is good because, you know, I, I didn't do anything really too bad. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had pretty good friends. Um, you know, there was, there's a very close group of friends and we, we just kind of said, we're not going to do drugs. We're not going to get caught up in a lot of the foolishness that was going on around us. Um, uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I had uh, a lot, a lot of family there. Uh, my mom is from St. Petersburg where I grew up um, pretty close to my dad's family. So there was lots of family around, you know, we, we would go to these football games uh, for, for Florida A&M a couple times a year. And that was always a big uh, family gathering and, Christmas and and uh, Thanksgiving was oftentimes at, at our house, and everybody yeah. just convened up. My, my house was the house that everybody wanted to go to. You know, cool. Um, yeah, brothers and sisters. Uh, I have a half brother um, who is twelve years older than me. Uh-huh. Um, my dad's son, and um, we didn't grow up together, but uh, so technically, I was an, an only child growing up. So, um, which was interesting, but, uh, <laughs> I bet, like I said, there's, there's lots of people around. Um, people were always dropping by our house. You know, um, there was, I remember growing up, if there was a day where no one called or stopped by the house, it felt weird. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because people, you know, people just showed up at my house all the time, <laughs> you know? To, to this so, day, I mean, my, my if I if I were to go to St. Petersburg now, I couldn't go to a grocery store or any place without running into somebody that knows my parents. Okay, that's cool. That's yeah. com- that's what you call community. Yeah, absolutely. So what what kind of uh, what kind of um, music was your dad playing in the house? Being a musician and all. Um, you know, I remember my dad listening to a lot of different stuff. He was a big fan of Burt Bacharach. Um, mm-hmm. He was a big fan of Cannonball Adderley, uh, Quincy Jones, um, Carpenters. Um, mm. And I, I think that's where I get my my love of songs from because mm-hmm. it was never about chops or solos. It was about composition and and songs that told stories and mm-hmm. music that makes it feel something so mm-hmm. um i i you know some of my earliest memories now that i think about it some of my earliest memories as a kid are about music i remember being small enough that i could crawl under my my grandmother's coffee table mm-hmm. and uh listening to beatles songs you know, really? um, my, my, my mom likes to tell the story of when I went to church one Sunday and the choir was singing. And since I didn't know the words to the song, I just start singing. I want to hold your hand by the Beatles. <laughs> and she's, she's shut up, boy. But, you know, I just wanted to participate. Uh, <laughs> you know, that used to happen you know? to me in church, but, you know, and I didn't know what they were saying. So I used to make up words. I used to sing the yeah. melody. Well, this, correctly. this is my version of that. Yeah. Now you said your dad was into uh, Burt Bacharach. Was that via Dionne Warwick or 
was he just in the Burt Bacharach? Well, you know, uh, the story goes, Burt Bacharach's songwriting partner was a guy named Hal David. Hal David, Mm mm-hmm. And my dad went to school with him. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. That's cool. Wow, high school, like public school or college or what? I think I think college. I think I think they both went to FAMU. Did uh, so, Did David study music too? You know, I don't know. I, it's just something that I heard growing up. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I know wow. that there was that there was that connection, and that's why that's at least that's what I was told. Yeah, I was in. I got into. I got into uh, Burt Bacharach, but it was via Dionne Warwick, and all those great hits she had written by Bacharach and David. Yeah, he he was an amazing songwriter. And and the thing is, people don't write songs like that now. I, I get mm-hmm. so frustrated because I hear these songs with two note melodies. I'm like, that's not a song, or mm-hmm. or a song that has no. No bridge, no chorus. It's like just four chords played over and over. Like, mm-hmm. there's, there's no imagination. That doesn't make me feel anything. Right. Right. So, like, if, if music doesn't take you somewhere, it's not doing its job to me. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm old, and I'm sure a lot of young people would disagree with me, but that's my story. I'm sticking <laughs> with it. Well, you're not old. You're still a young man. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, so when you got out of the Air Force, well, you not when you got out, but when you left Japan, transferred to uh, Travis, and that's how Mm -hmm. you got to Sacramento, you said. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you got out, you moved, you became a resident of Sacramento. Yes. Cool. I moved and I, to Sacramento I think, because uh-huh. I knew people there. Yeah. And we we met soon after you got out. Yes. Isn't that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Because what happened, I moved to town. Um, just like any new person in a, in a new city, I would hang out at the music store and try to meet people and, you know, find out about gigs. And uh, mm-hmm. Gary Cooper, who was the uh, the guitar repairman at Skip's Music, was just just great to me. Like, from the time I moved to town, he was telling everybody about me. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the people that he told was Charlie Peacock. Mm-hmm. And I, I got a call from Charlie to come and audition for his band. And at that point, I had never heard of Charlie or, or his music or anything. So I called my friend Barbara Long, and I said, "Barbara, I, I just got a call to, to audition for this guy Charlie Peacock. What should I do?" And her exact words were, "Show up and play your ass off." So <laughs> that's what I tried to do. Cool. How so was it that? Was, it was. Um, it was. It was fun. It was. Uh, where where Bruce where Spencer, was it? Was a drummer. Uh huh. And it was at Warehouse. Um, okay. I think it was Bruce and Mike Miller and Webbone mm-hmm. 
and um, Bruce and I kind of clicked right away. And um, I think I the audition was in August. No, mm-hmm. the audition was in July, and maybe a month or so later, I was on a plane going to, to England to play Greenbelt. Cool. So my I, my very first. Uh, time going to Europe was with Charlie. Um, wow! Uh, for the Greenbelt Festival. Wow, man, that's great. I didn't know that. Yeah, we we made a couple of records and uh, toured around a little bit. It was I, that was really the first professional band situation I was in because it it was my my only job was to play bass in that band and. Mm. You know, we would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And when we hit the stage, it was killing. And I, I I miss that. Um, Musicians these days don't believe in rehearsal. uh, You are preaching to the choir, my friend. It's a whole Uh, new paradigm. Call me when you got a gig. I don't care if we sound like. Just well, pay you know me what, what you said you're going to pay me. It, it's not even just call me when you have a gig. Even if you have a gig, it's like, okay, I can do one, maybe two rehearsals and how much are you going to pay me? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but I have to say, as a general rule, I'm pretty blessed as a band leader. Um, I've got some core people that are really committed and, and dedicated to this project, and I really... I'm grateful for that. So just want to put that out there. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, the Peacock Band, the 77s, man, we practiced every day. Yeah. We were right down the hall from each other. And And that's uh, why those bands were were killing. It's like when they they mm -hmm. went on the stage, there was no wondering what was going to happen. Right. Exactly. Everybody knew. The yeah. funny thing is, when I think back on that 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 time period now, mm-hmm. I I realize now that I thought I was a lot better than I really was. Like I was hmm. I was young and I was cocky and I thought, man, I'm just you know, I'm the I'm the Daryl Jones of Christian rock. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I. I realized that there was so much I didn't know, mm-hmm. um, but Charlie was was uh, patient and, and and he would say, you know, just learn your instrument, just you know, learn the song. He would he would always kind of make me dig a little deeper, mm-hmm. and uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, there there are things that I'm much better at now. I think I'm a better band leader and a better musician and a better songwriter because of that time period with, with, with Chuck. I, I have, you know, I've told him that, you know, he definitely mm. made me a better musician. Cool. That's great, man. Well, I ne- you never came off as being cocky to me. Oh, in my head, I was very cocky. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, and you know, when I, when I think about it now, I'm like, really, what were you thinking? You were lucky to be there. 
you know. Uh, so, just, so how did how did the Peacock band come to an end for you? Uh, Chuck moved to Nashville. Oh, so when um, he moved to Nashville, did was there an announcement like uh, I'm breaking out the band? Thank you guys, and uh, here's a severance of no. Was there any? <laughs> was there any sort of speech or anything like that? No. Um, there was. I mean, the work had slowed down. You know, I think you know we all thought Chuck was working on a new record. You know, he had demos, and you know we we're talking about recording a new record. Um, I think the record business was going through a shift, and that kind of the whole exit um, island thing was kind of in flux. Um, mm-hmm. I think that kind of took its toll on everybody, and um. Somewhere in there, there there was a, a break where Chuck didn't have a bunch of gigs, and I went. I took a gig um, with this band called the Briefcase Blues Band. It was yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I did that, and I I, uh, I, I remember that name. Yeah, um, I did that, and I don't know if it was before or after that I started playing with Henry Robinette. Um. I think it must have been after that because I remember Henry had asked me a couple times, you know, to join the band. And mm-hmm. I had, you know, I, I knew Eric and I thought Eric was an amazing bass player and I considered him a friend. So I was like, you need to talk to Eric about this because I don't want to just come in and replace this dude that's been in the band forever. It's like, you know, we, we need that needs to be cool. And I, I had a conversation with Eric and I just remember him being so cool about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I learned so much from, from years of watching him play. Um, mm-hmm. I know you know this, but I used to say Eric Clevin had what I call the invisible school of bass playing. It didn't stick out, but it supported the music in such a beautiful way that, it was easy to overlook the beauty of what he did, but every now and then he would, he would play a note or shift something. that just would make you go, wow, that was mm. so simple and so great. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I tried to incorporate what he did to my own bombastic, you know, wannabe Lewis Johnson slash Jimmy Haslip crap. Mm-hmm. You know, um, man, I think I think he made me at least try to play simpler. Uh huh. Well, uh, you and, know, and again, that's a- the um, the the Henry Robinette band was in Sacramento. Uh, that's the band that Daryl is referring to, and uh, uh, our great friend uh, Mr. Eric Clevin was playing bass in that band, and. Um, you really had to know him to to really appreciate that I me me saying about him he was one of the most special people in the world. Absolutely, he was he Absolutely. was like he was like a gem 
and uh, we lost Eric um, in a fatal car accident some years ago. And uh, man, we had a lot of good times together. And I have a old symbol here in my drum room that Eric gave me. It's a symbol he got from Afghanistan uh, when he was in the Air Force or something. Yeah, he was in the Air Force too, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We used to talk about right. that. Um, yeah, there's so many great Eric Clevin stories. Um, uh-huh. my, my favorite one was um, I, I was a big fan of Willie Weeks. And okay. he was telling me about the Donnie Hathaway live record. And I mm-hmm. guess I didn't know about it. And he goes, oh, you got to check this record out. So he let me borrow his record. His record. And if you know anything mm-hmm. about Eric, you know, he's very particular about his records. Yeah. So he let me borrow this record. I had it for a few weeks. And uh, I eventually found... Another copy of it, and I think maybe the the copy that he had was like a a, 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 a master recording or so, like a like an audio file disc of it. It was a really mm-hmm. pristine copy of the record, mm-hmm. and you know I, I was kind of freaked about records too. I always had like the the non magnetic uh, sleeves and all that stuff. So I was getting ready to return the album to Eric. Took took it off the turntable putting it in the sleeve and it slipped out of my hand and broke. And I thought, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Oh my God. And I searched high and low trying to find another copy of that record of the Mm -hmm. same quality. And eventually Mm -hmm. I had to to call him and and tell him what happened. And he's like, Hey, stuff happens. But I, I, to this day, I feel terrible about that because I'm like, you know, but again, just a really beautiful uh, person and a gentleman in every single way. Yeah, in every single way. Yeah, yeah man. Miss, I mean, I... So, uh, you know, you, you got in the Henry Robinette band, and uh, mm-hmm. I think I had... I was there for some of that. I was there in town for some of that, but there, there was a lot yep. of it. I wasn't there for so I don't I don't know how you finally got to where you are now down in the Bay Area and um, your your job with what's what's the uh, company's name that you're employed uh, by Dunlop Jim Dunlop yeah Dunlop yeah and, uh, how, how you got into all that and all that so I'm going to ask you to stand on the springboard of the Henry Robinette group and jump into the future. Okay. Uh, So the Henry Robinette group was fun. Uh, At some point, I I met this guy, Ron Randall, who was in the MI business doing what I do now. And he just knew manufacturers from from every base company and he just knew all these people. And I just thought it was such a cool thing. And, mm-hmm. um, I went to New York to visit him and he's like, you know, I, I told him, I said, I'd, I'd love to do this. And he said, well, you know, I work for this amp company and we're going to need a rep in California. So, 
but you would have to be in the Bay Area because there's not enough. Sacramento is not centrally located enough. So I convinced my wife to move to uh, Oakland, and mm-hmm. I worked for Eden's base apps for a little while, and that started that whole trajectory. Being back in the Bay Area uh, just created an enormous amount of musical opportunities, playing with, you know, another level of musicians um, and really having to work to step up my game because, you know, in Sacramento, there's only so many musicians. And, you know, I felt like I had done some of the best gigs there were to do there. But Mm -hmm. coming to the Bay Area, you got to wait your turn and and prove yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I did that. I worked for Eden for a while and I worked for Lakeland. And um, at some point, I'm trying to remember the order of things. Um, I got asked by a friend of mine, Will Littlejohn, uh, also from Sacramento. He was working mm-hmm. for a studio called Wave Group, and they were starting to do music for video games. And he asked me to help him uh, put together musicians and to play on stuff. And that turned into five years of doing karaoke revolution, guitar hero, rock band, uh, a bunch of different music video games as a mm-hmm. bass player and producer. And uh, that was cool. a, a great experience. And mm-hmm. Based on that, I kind of got the bug to do my own record. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, when I was in the Henry Robinette group, Joe Gilman and I wrote a bunch of songs. Mm-hmm. Um, we wrote a bunch of songs for his record. and we, just, we would just get together once a week on Monday or Wednesday, go to Jim Boy's for lunch, and then go to his house and write songs. Ooh, Jim Boy's Tacos, baby. You, you know it. That'll, so I, that'll, I that'll cause a lot of creation within the. <laughs> it did indeed. It did indeed. <laughs> uh, so Joe Gilman is the pianist in the Henry Robinette group. Uh, professor over at, uh, is he still at American River College? Mm, he's there and he's also at the, the Brubeck Institute in Stockton, I think it is. Right, 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 right. At Stanford University. Yeah, he's he's all yeah. over the place. Yeah, he's a super, pianist. super talented guy. And um, another great spirit. Yeah, and also really funny. People don't realize how funny Joe Gilman is. Oh, yeah. But that dude used to have me in stitches all the time. <laughs> so it was it was great to, to write with him because he always had a sense of humor in his songwriting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I went over to Joe's house a couple of times to write some songs. Uh, He's something else. Have have him play my ideas, my thoughts, and my humming. He's really good at that. Yeah, he is. You know, I I would. I remember sometimes we'd be writing, and I'd say, "Okay, the chord right here, it needs to feel like whatever," and he would just play Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Or give yeah. me three different options of that same feeling. Yeah. And, you know, and, and he can sense where you're going as, as far as yeah. in, in your, listen to your met, 
melody and kind of give you the voicings that uh, really make a great progression, you know? Uh, yeah, he's so, he's so darn good, man. Dang. And it's funny because we used to write so many different ways. Sometimes mm-hmm. he would come up with tracks with just, just changes in a groove with no melody. So it left mm-hmm. me the total freedom to, to come up with a melody and lyrics. And other times I would have just words. Um, mm-hmm. I remember, do you know, um, uh, what is her name? Renee Garcia? Oh, yeah. So Renee Garcia was the background singer on the Michael W. Smith tour when I mm-hmm. uh, opened for them with Margaret Becker. Yeah. And we got to be really good friends. And um, I played her some of the demo stuff that Joe and I had written. And she said, you should write something for me. So uh, I wrote this song called Heaven Can Hear Us. And it took me like two years to get the lyrics together because I had all these ideas in my, in my hand. And I called Joe and I said, hey, Joe, I just finished this song. And I read him the lyrics over the phone. And he said, okay, come on over. And I went to his house and he played me pretty much exactly what ended up on the record. He cool. just heard those words and wrote an entire song. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? It took me two years and it took you like 15 seconds? <laughs> But that's that's Joe Gilman. It took him two years to do something else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so what tell me, uh, you get, you got a new band? It's called Agape Soul. Um, mm-hmm. And man, uh, that opening track we just played was like killer. So I imagine the re- rest of the record has got to be like that. And and uh, you guys are doing. You do, huh? I'm pretty proud of it. Yeah, you guys are doing pretty well in England. You just had a some a good uh, placement on charts over there, right? Mm-hmm. It's number one on the UK soul chart, and uh, it's it's still still doing well. Um, it's, Is that uh, the whole album or a single? Uh, that was the whole album. Um, and, the and what's the title? Uh, the title is Conversations. Cool. By Agape Soul. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, and I got to have some of my favorite people on this record. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, 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 the uber-talented Mr. Tommy Sims. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Gales on guitar. Um, a couple of guys from Snarky Puppy on horns and percussion. Uh, okay. Paul Jackson Jr. Um, just a lot of amazing, talented people that kind of poured into this project and uh, made it a lot of fun. How long have you been doing it? The band's been together for no the this this particular project. Oh, <laughs> it took three years to finish the record. Wow! And, and my wife would always go. Aren't you done with this record yet? I'm like, do you want a quick record or do you want a good record? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it it just kind of worked out that way. You know, kind of being a grown up, you 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 have other things in life that you have to deal with, and you just have to get to it when you can get to it. And really, mm-hmm. God opened some doors and He closed some doors that 
if he hadn't done either thing, it would have been a very different record. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, he I'm, had to I'm make the record that he happy. wanted. Yeah, and and I'm I'm <laughs> I'm good with that. Definitely good. With so that. so tell so tell me, did you grow up in the church, or and were you always a Christian, or was there a certain point in your life where you where you like you know, this lack of terminology became a Christian? I grew up in the church. You know, my, my dad was the, the minister of music in my church. My, my grandfather was a deacon. My, my grandmother, you know, was heavily, my whole family was involved in the church. Um, as a kid, it was more something I had to do or was expected to do. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't know that I fully understood everything. Um, I would say as an adult, you know, I, I made the decision to become a Christian and mm-hmm. some things have pulled me away from the church at times. Um, you know, just being confused by what man does versus what God says. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people who are, representatives of the church who don't really live what they preach that, you know, I, I let that get in my head from time to time. But mm. You must be uh, in that flux right now. Uh, actually, I'm not. And that, that's oh, what, I, what I was getting. The, the, for the last two years, well, I, since I, since I have been married to my wife, we have definitely, uh, grown closer to, to God and had a, a relationship to God in our lives pretty much the whole time we've been together, like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And in this last two years, we found a new church. Um, we we mm-hmm. moved and we found a, a new church here in the area where we live that is just uh, the most amazing church and the most amazing group of people um, I've ever met. Um, the pastors are great teachers. Uh-huh. Um, they they live what they preach. Um, the church is uh, just a phenomenal church. Uh, the, the way that they are involved in the community, and um, I can't even say enough good things about them. Um, for the first time in my life, I can't wait to get to church on Sunday, whereas it mm. used to be. Oh, I gotta go to church on Sunday. Can I just sleep in mm. now? Sunday and going to church and being involved with the people in the church is the best part of my day. Mm. You know, I, I have, you know, at various times I've played in church and it was like a gig. It's like, okay, I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna play. I'm gonna make. Now I play in church and I don't get paid and I'm much happier doing it. Because mm-hmm. my my motivation for doing it is that I'm serving God and Serve. and I am contributing to His His house, and that's mm-hmm. way more important to me than making some money. And, and we, all, my whole family, sees the 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 blessing of being involved in this church and and just 
changing our lives. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Is your church uh, multiracial? Yes, it is. It is very uh, mixed. Uh, it's just, and you feel you feel welcome and and included the minute you walk in the door. Hmm. You know, yeah. there, there is no feeling of judgment like, well, you know, you're not wearing the right clothes or you don't you don't hang out with the right people. You know, you mm-hmm. might see people that look like gang members or people that look like socialites, but they are all there serving God and in a way that you just know is real. Mm-hmm. You know, um, people are, are, are unafraid to be their authentic self um, in, in that mm-hmm. church, which I think makes a huge difference because, you know, sometimes churches try to pretend to be better than. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as many times as I've read the Bible, you know, there there are some basic principles that I never got before. One of which, God can't use perfect people. So if you're waiting around to get your life together before you come to God, you're missing the point. The, the most powerful people in the Bible were broken people. And God yeah, he, used he, their brokenness. He, he to, can use them. To, to he can use imperfect yeah. people, but, uh, and he always does. <laughs> and thank God for that, because I'm <laughs> yes. pretty imperfect. Yeah, man, I'll tell you. I mean, for you, for you to say, uh, for you, a brother, to say you walked into a church and you immediately felt welcome, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know if white people feel that. You know, if they walk into a, a mostly white church, which they probably would, I think they would automatically just feel welcome. Right. But for but for a brother to to walk into a church and go, "Oh, I feel welcome." Then I know you're saying it's a multiracial, multicultural environment and um you can feel that sense of uh the red carpet rolling out. It, it, I mean the 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 pastor is is white and Norwegian. Sean mm-hmm. Nepstad, his wife is uh Nicaraguan. They have mm-hmm. four incredible daughters, um, and and the church, the, the the leadership team is like the United Colors of Benetton, you know. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you know. And the other thing is, you can you can talk to them like regular people. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. times they'll come out after the service and just you know stand out in the hallway and greet people and talk. You know, we had a 20-minute conversation with Pastor Diana on Sunday, and it was just just like talking to a friend. You mm-hmm. know, we we had a situation a few maybe a year ago where my stepson had a medical emergency, and we had to fly to Canada. And mm-hmm. I posted on Instagram to Pastor Diana and said, "Please pray for my family." She responded to me immediately. And mm. followed up, and when we got back, she was like, "So, how's your son? What's going on?" It's like there's five thousand people that go to this church, mm. but wow. 
she took the time to respond and to care and to be just a real person. And you and I both know, I've been to much smaller person, smaller churches where they don't know your name, no matter how right. long you've been going there. Right, right. Man. You know, I, I, I don't mean to diss anybody, you, but I yeah. have been in a lot of churches where I felt invisible, no matter how involved mm-hmm. I was in the process. Right, right. Hmm. I can relate. Yeah. Well, hey, hey, um, I'm glad you're going to church. I'm glad you found a great church home. That's um, that warms my heart. Um, when you come to visit, we'll have to go. We'll have to go. We'll have to go for a show. Yes, sir. But I want you, we're, we're kind of getting to the end of the program here, and I want you to tell everybody about how to get in contact with Agape Soul, where you're playing, how to get your music, and all that stuff. Uh, it's really easy. Um, AgapeSoul.com. A-G-A-P-E-S-O-U-L. It's one word. Um uh, you can get our music there. You can see where we're playing. Um, you can you can listen to the songs, learn a little bit about the band, who we are, um, and really our our music is just about trying to create something positive in a world that's not always so. So, what do you guys play? Uh, we're playing kind of all over Northern California. We have a, a big CD release coming up on November first at a new club in Berkeley called the Cornerstone. Um, we play in Napa at a place called Silos sometimes. Just kind of all over. I try not to play too often, um, but uh, we are hoping to go over. Because um, it's, it's not a club band, per se. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's... Um, we don't do covers. You know, we might do a couple covers, but they're covers that fit what we do. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of an experience. You know, we want people to feel like they're in our living room and and being uh, part of the conversation. That's that's you know where the, the title comes from. There's there's a conversation mm-hmm. that we have as musicians with each other on the stage. The conversation that we have with the listener and the audience, and also. Mm-hmm just the conversations that we have as humans throughout our, our lives. And mm-hmm. we hope to influence those conversations in a positive way, because really any, on any given day, any conversation can change somebody's world. Right. So Agreed. the title of the song says you can change the world with a conversation. Mm-hmm. Do you have a booking agent? Um, I do not, and I am accepting applications at any time. And they get in contact with you? How? Uh, uh, info at agapesoul.com. Um, mm-hmm. Again, the, 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 the website is the, 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 the catch-all for everything. You can remember agapesoul.com. You can find us. And people can call you and, and book you without... In, without going through an agent or something, they can just get in mm-hmm. contact with you directly. Yes. Okay. You guys do house shows up up in Northern California? Um, no, we talked about it at some point. Um, but no. Well, I think you should. 
And with that, man, I'm going to thank you for being on the show today. Everybody go out and get conversations by Agape Soul. Thank you, my brother, for being on the show. I love you. Thank you so much for having you. me. Thank you, man. Yeah, Absolutely. man. Absolutely. All right. This is Jackie Bertoni from Jackie's Groove. Come join me weekly on my journey through the music business as I take you behind the velvet rope, interviewing industry notables such as Al DiMiola, Michael McDonald, and Al Jerome, to name but a few. Listen to their stories on being in the studios recording number one hits and onto the stages throughout the globe. Allow me to be your music historian. You can hear me live every Monday at 2 p.m. and every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time or 24-7 on Jackie'sGroove.com. Ready to get your groove on? Hi, this is Tim Dolbear from Eclectica Studios. I'm a full-time mixing and recording engineer. I work with Grammy winners, labels, and indie artists using state-of-the-art digital mixing and restoration tools and the very best in analog gear. Really, though, it's my ability to bring tracks to life and fulfill your vision for your music. This has made me sought after by producers and artists worldwide. So spend your time working on music and not chasing a mix down a rabbit hole. Go to timdolbear.com and check out our free one-song mix offer. You know what's all around you every waking moment of your life? Marketing. You're choking on it. I'm Scott Robertson, and when it comes to strategic PR, branding, and marketing, I've seen it all. And actually, I'm still seeing it because bad marketing never sleeps. Join me each week on May the Best Brand Win right here on Intertalk Radio and learn how to make the marketing for your brand unforgettable. Are you serious about your music? Are you ready to run with the big dogs? The experts at Pitbull Audio have the gear to get you into the game. From leading manufacturers like Mesa Boogie, Fender, Pioneer, and American Audio. To sound your best, you need the best. Pitbull Audio can deliver in rehearsal, on stage, and into the big time. Dropping beats, shredding guitar, or making the crowd roar. Whatever you dream, Pitbull Audio can help make it happen. We are Pitbull Audio. We want you to play it loud. PitbullAudio.com.